What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why BRIC countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast series brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist, but I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas, so in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at gender and the economy, and my guest is Bishnu Gupta, a professor of economics at the University of Warwick. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. Thank you, Nicola. Do you think it's important to consider gender within the wider economy? Women are half the population, yet their presence is low in the economy, in the political space, and also within the family they have less of a voice. So it's important to think of gender in the economy in these different aspects. Have women always, though, been involved in the economy? In the uh, traditional societies where agriculture was the main activity, women participated in that cultivation system. They did various jobs like dairy or cultivating rice. As countries began to industrialize, things changed quite a lot. As incomes began to rise, men wanted to be the main breadwinner. So in many cases, even the trade unions took up these demand of a male breadwinner family where they wanted to support a family and their children and women could now for the first time have some leisure in their hands. However, as more and more women got educated and the service sectors became more important as an employer, women moved back into the labor force again. So we do see this kind of decline in women's labor force participation as countries industrialize, but then an increase again with the rise of the service sector economy. So now do you think the economy works well for women? So there are problems uh, to think that, you know, just because they're in the labor market, things will work well for them. We know that women get paid less than men. So the gender gap is an important pay gap is an important factor in in the economy. 
It also means that women who do a disproportionate share of housework or childcare do not get recognized. So women do more and more for the economy without getting paid for the, the amount of work they do. And, and why do you think that is? Why is it not seen as contributing to the economy when it's an investment in human capital? I think within the family, there's an ex- expectation that housework is something which is done. So you don't need to reward it. Economists, sociologists and uh, social activists have been campaigning to get this recognized and have women get paid for housework. But this hasn't really translated into policy yet. We know that when women work, they have a greater voice in the way resources are allocated. So how do they spend their income? They spend their income in a way that it benefits children more than how men spend their income. So giving women a better say in decision-making happens when they work outside the family. So there are two things. One is housework is not recognized as a formal employment, but there is also this question of how important their voice is within the family unless they work outside. But are there any examples where women's work is valued in the home and monetized and recognized by the government? There isn't so far, as far as I know, that policies that directly do this. So in the future, if we have a scheme of universal basic income, everybody's going to have access to that. And maybe in that case, women's work will be recognized within the household. Isn't it the case even in Scandinavia? Because we often think that they're you know, very advanced in this sort of area. So Scandinavia has had major breakthroughs in things like maternity leave. They have some of the longest maternity, paid maternity leave anywhere in the world. And women can withdraw from the labor force and come back once they decide that they're ready to rejoin the workforce. And that's not the case in most countries. So uh, maternity leave, for example, varies a lot, paid maternity leave. It is somewhere, you know, uh, around 12 weeks in the UK, but it is basically nothing in the United States. So this is the only space where uh, there has been a lot of policy change in recent years, and Europe actually looks to be doing better than many other parts of the world. Each week, we look at a historical example of this episode's theme. Today, it's gender and the economy. Many factors affect the economy, and gender could be one of the reasons why some economies jumped ahead of others. My producer, Lovejeet Daliwal, has been looking at what happened following the plague in Europe in the Middle Ages. The late Middle Ages in Northern Europe was a golden age, not just for the worker, but also for female labour. The sudden fall in the population due to the plague led to women entering the workforce in greater numbers. In England, there was a rise in the number of unmarried women entering towns. Female servants typically entered service in their early teens and usually worked until their mid-twenties, after which they married. The shortage of labour meant a real increase in wages, allowing women to accumulate a considerable amount of social capital, giving them more independence and choice over their lives and marrying later than their Mediterranean cousins. Some scholars have argued that this labour provided by women and delaying marriage influenced the economy in the North Sea region, utterly transforming it. 
unlike former times where a pattern of high wages led to population growth and then a fall in wages, the usual pattern caused by the plague or an earthquake. A delayed marriage meant a lower fertility rate. The population did not rise exponentially, and so wages remained stable. It broke the cyclical pattern. Women continued to enter the workforce and wages continued to stabilise, contributing to economic growth. The economies grew steadily, and it's even thought that it may have been a factor in bringing about the Dutch Golden Age of the 17th century and the British Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. Do you agree that more women in the workforce helped bring about the Dutch Golden Age and the British Industrial Revolution? So it is true that there was an increase in women's labour force participation in these uh, countries. And the way it impacted on economic growth is that they delayed their marriage and therefore controlled their fertility and therefore population growth did not rise. And that's how the North Sea region is different from even the rest of Europe in bringing about a controlled population growth and therefore a rising economic prosperity. So it did impact economic growth, women's labor market participation, but not in the way we think it might have an effect directly. And are there differences now between countries in terms of women's participation in the workplace? Yes, that seems to be really different across uh, countries. We ha- there are some African countries where it is as high as uh, 70%. And then there are countries such as India where it is very low at 20%. Uh, within Europe, also, we see a big variation. It's somewhere around 50 to 60%, but it is not you know, higher than that in most countries. And isn't in some countries it's a question of status that it's seen to be good to not be working? You're absolutely right that, for for example, in India, women's labor force participation used to be something close to 30% in the 1930s. Today, it's 20%. And that's because as people have got richer, they prefer their spouses to stay at home and invest in the children. And why is it so important for women to participate, do you think? There is a lot of evidence from different countries in the world that when women earn a wage, they decide how they're going to spend it. And they spend it very differently from the way men spend it. So, for example, they spend a lot more on children, they spend a lot more on household needs. And therefore, uh, just to get a voice in the way family spending is made, women's working work outside the home is an important factor. I also saw an interesting report um, from the consultants PwC that said that increasing women's employment rates across the um, OECD countries could boost GDP by as much as $6 trillion a year. That's an amazing amount. Yes. So if people, you know, in the economy, two things matter to raise economic growth is how much we are investing. And the other thing that matters is how many people are participating in the economy in order to uh, generate an output. And therefore, if more and more women enter the labor market, we can see a rise in the total economic output in that economy. In East Asia, after the Second World War, there was a big decline in the number of children women uh, had. 
And this encouraged more and more women to enter the labor market. And as a result, there was a big increase in output of countries such as South Korea and Taiwan. According to the World Economic Forum, there are still 72 countries where women can't open their own bank account in their own name. What do you make of that? Well, I, it is obviously a disgrace that you know they need permission to open a bank account. They often need a permission to, to do anything, um, a permission from the male uh, household head. But this is changing. This is changing in most places. So, you know, I'm hopeful that in, in the future, this things are going to get better. For example, India is an example here that, you know, a lot of the payments are made directly to women. And therefore, opening a bank account by women is becomes important. This is also the case in other countries that certain types of payments go to the bank accounts of women. And therefore, it, it forces them to open an account. And But I, I completely uh, accept that there are countries where this is still not possible, but I'm hopeful that this will change. Stat of the Week. Now it's time for our Stat of the Week. Each week, we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week, our Stat of the Week is the gender pay gap. According to the World Economic Forum, the global average gender pay gap is 31.4%. How significant is this figure? When we talk of an average gender pay gap, there is often not understanding the right way to think of it. And that's because men and women in many industries work in different jobs. So women tend to work in less skilled jobs compared to men. And therefore, the pay gap that we see on average is bigger, not because in each job there's a difference, but because men and women are in different jobs. Having said that, it is also the case that for the same types of jobs, women are often paid less than men. I've seen estimates that closing the gender pay gap could boost female earnings across the OECD countries, for instance, by $2 trillion a year. That's a significant number. Yes, of course, that is a significant number. But it's important to, uh, to also understand that, you know, where does this pay gap come from? Is it just that women are paid less than men? And this is, the, this is indeed the case in many countries. For the same job, many agricultural laborers in developing countries, women get paid less than men. But in, in the developed countries today, a lot of the pay gap comes from this differences in the type of skills they have and the type of jobs they do. And that's where I think the policymakers need to make an effort to close the pay gap. And then, of course, the consequences are going to be quite dramatic. And are there some parts of the world doing better than others? Yes. In, I, I think in many European countries, there has been a systematic effort to try to close this gap. In the United States, also, there is a systematic effort to close this gap. But, you know, there are many parts of the world there is where this does not happen. And this is still not happening. That was Stat of the Week. And this week, we were looking at the global average gender pay gap. Many countries enacted legislation in the 1970s for equality, which also meant equal pay. And there are, as we've just discussed, disparities still. The UK in particular has set out goals to rectify the gender pay gap. Firms now need to publish their gender pay gap. Do you think this strategy will make a difference? Yes, of course, because it allows us to understand where the difference is coming from. 
I know, for example, the UK universities publish these figures by pay groups. So they look at each segment of the pay scale and the type of job in these uh, pay scales and the gender gap there. And that's a really useful way to understand where this gap is coming from. Is it that men and women are in different types of jobs or is it because within the same jobs they are getting paid differently? Professor Gupta, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review Intelligence Squared Business on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's the Economy, a podcast mini-series for Intelligence Squared Business. This podcast was produced by Lovejeet Dhaliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jassett. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.